You are tuned to the Nahum Siegel Network on jmandtheam.org and nachumsegel.com. Stay tuned for JM Sunday with Matis Weingast.
Good morning, everyone, and welcome to JM Sunday, right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Matas Weingast. I'm here with you on the 19th of July, 2015, and the third day in the month of Av, 5775. We are in our nine days format, so uh, we are going to be presenting uh, some educational material by the legendary Rabbi Beryl Wine. He will be speaking on the topic of the Six-Day War and then on the topic of the land of Israel as a Jewish value. So uh, we'll get to that in just a few seconds. We'll have our news from Israel in English uh, live, hopefully around 8.10 this morning, going a little late so we can get the first discussion by Rabbi Wine in in its entirety before then. If you're studying Daf Yomi, it's Nadarim Daf 56. And uh, today, the temperature in the north, uh, in New Jersey, New York area, is going to be very warm, and there's a heat advisory out, uh, which means that it could be dangerous weather, so you have to be careful out there. Dangerous in the sense of the heat. Right now, it's 79 degrees, clear. It's expected to be clear all day today and tonight. But going up to a high of 97 degrees this afternoon with a... uh, they call a real field temperature of over 100. So you have to be very careful out there not to overexert yourself and make sure to stay hydrated. That's uh, The advisory is between 12 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time here in the uh, New York, New Jersey area. And then tonight going back down to 79 degrees. In Yerushalayim, it's 86 degrees right now and clear, going down to 64 degrees. When you get a chance, like us on Facebook, JM Sunday. And uh, we're going to go now to Rabbi Beryl Wine. And the topic this morning, the first topic, is the Six-Day War. Probably the most uh, dramatic event in recent Jewish history, certainly uh, uh, ranking as uh, one of the most emotional experiences that the Jewish people have had has been the uh, Battle of the Six-Day War. The backdrop to the event uh, is complicated, but the basic backdrop of the event was that Nasser, in his attempt to unify the Arabs, in his attempt to uh, achieve his goal of pan-Arabism under his domination and under the domination of Egypt, ran into many great problems, most of them with the Arabs who were not willing to be his uh, client subjects. He was engaged in a uh, bitter uh, civil war 
in Yemen, in which the Saudi Arabian royalists uh, supported uh, the uh, royalists in Yemen against uh, Nasser and the Soviet-backed insurgents. And it was a quicksand. It was a morass. Uh, over 50,000 Egyptian troops were involved. It was, as we have unfortunately come to learn, another example of a larger power getting involved in a uh, war that they could not win. It's much the effect that the United States had in Vietnam and that uh, the Soviet Union is having in Afghanistan. The larger power on paper certainly should be able to win and prevail very easily, but it doesn't turn out that way. And uh, Nasser had a uh, faltering economy. He was... Uh, he had bankrupted Egypt. He had mortgaged the entire Egyptian cotton crop to Russia to pay for armaments. He was badly overextended. He was in a war in Yemen that he couldn't win. And he sought, therefore, a shortcut that would allow him to achieve all of his goals in one fell swoop. And that shortcut naturally had to do with the state of Israel, namely with the destruction of the state of Israel. But if he could mount a victory over the... Jews, then he would certainly become the hero of the Arab world, the leader of the Arab world. His, uh, his lifelong ambition of domination could be achieved. Now, Nasser had many enemies in the Arab world, foremost of whom was King Hussein of Jordan. Uh, they called each other the most vile names imaginable, but in the history of the world, calling each other names doesn't necessarily uh, prevent, uh, certainly in the Arab world, it doesn't prevent the, uh, the brotherly embrace and the kiss of alliance. He also uh, was not on very good terms with Syria. Syria had at one time in the early 1960s been a part of Egypt in a... Uh, in an impossible marriage called the United Arab Republic. And uh, Syria had broken away finally from Nasser's embrace. And the military government that was installed in Syria was not anxious to do Nasser's bidding. Nevertheless, Nasser was the consummate uh, politician, uh, diplomat, wheeler-dealer. And he, uh, as early as 1965 had in mind that he was going to somehow deal a death blow to the state of Israel, which would uh, forever immortalize him in the Arab world and temporarily at least give him domination over the Arab world. It would eclipse the Saudis. It would give him a chance. Egypt is a country with a lot of, a lot of people and little resources, and Saudi Arabia is a country with little people and a lot of resources. You know, your brains and my beauty, and we have an unbeatable combination. All of that played a role in the coming of the Six-Day War. Another role was also played by Russia. Russia always has its own motives, and most of the time they are sinister. It was at the beginning of this time, beginning in 1965, that the first trickle of emigration of Jews from Russia began to occur. And Jews were let out of Russia. Most of them turned up in Israel. And, uh, in fact, uh, it was used by Russia as a means of blackmail against its Arab clients. 
many a time it was said to the Arabs that if you don't follow the Russian line and if you uh, abandon us and you want to go with the West, and then there was another three or 400,000 Russian Jews whom we will allow to go to Israel. And uh, since the Russian Jews initially who came to Israel were of a very high caliber uh, intellectually and technologically speaking, uh, the Arabs saw it as a terrible threat. And this was a, uh, a type of blackmail that was uh, very effective. In order to keep the blackmail going, though, Russia had to let out some Jews to keep the threat effective. And therefore, what Russia did was uh, begin small-scale immigration into Israel of Russian Jews under the guise of reuniting families, all sorts of things. Now, Russia and Israel then had diplomatic relations in 1965. Russia had broken off diplomatic relations once before with Israel, but it restored them in the early 1960s. And this uh, relationship between Russia and Israel was always a strained and a difficult one. And at the heart of the matter was the issue of the Russian Jews, whether or not they would be allowed free immigration, whether in substantial numbers they would be allowed to come to Israel. Russia also sold arms to the Arabs, to Egypt, to Syria. Jordan always purchased its arms from the West, from England and the United States. Russia sold enormous amount of arms, and Russia sold the most modern and sophisticated equipment. And in order to enable the Egyptians to assimilate that equipment and use it well, Russia sent along advisors. And at one time, Russia had as many as 25,000 military advisors in Russia. There was in, in Egypt, there was an entire Russian colony outside of Cairo. And uh, they were not well liked either by the Egyptian people or the Egyptian army, but they served the purpose. They trained the Egyptian army in the use of these weapons. Advanced MiG fighters, uh, Russian tanks, the latest tanks, many of them were tanks that were even the Warsaw Pact nations at that time did not have in their arsenal. And artillery... And it was, tra they were trained in Egyptian, and the Egyptians were trained in Russian military tactics as well. And uh, beginning in 1965, Nasser had a two-year goal of bringing the Egyptian army up to a point where he felt convinced that they would be able to overcome the Israelis. In terms of numbers and in terms of guns and armament, the advantage was all on the side of the Egyptians. Add to that the uh, fact that Israel had a hard time getting arms in the world. The United States then was in the midst of one of its uh, pious periods when it embargoed arms sales to the Middle East to all sides. As a practical matter, it meant that Israel couldn't get any arms because the Arabs were getting their arms from Russia without any problems. Uh, England did sell to Israel. Israel was able to buy chieftain tanks and centurion tanks. England did not sell them the latest models, but the Israelis renovated them. The Israelis took and put on uh, better guns. They simplified the tanks. Uh, the system uh, so far in Israel has been to make things simpler and less complicated because in desert warfare and sand warfare, all of the complicated uh, 
computer uh, type of technology which exists on war machines gets clogged with sand and it becomes useless. And therefore, uh, relatively speaking, the more simple the better. Today, the situation has changed because of the technology, and uh, there's no such thing as a simple weapon anymore. But in the 1960s, the Israelis were able to purchase these types of tanks from England and to renovate them. They also had some light tanks that they bought from France, AMX tanks, which uh, were little more than training tanks. But Israel struck a deal, and uh, that's to the credit of Shimon Peres, that he was the man who negotiated the deal. They struck a deal with France. For various reasons, de Gaulle, at the beginning of his regime, was uh, not pro-Israel, but he was against the Arabs. Eventually, his good sense would get hold of him, and he would become, uh, he would say that the French uh, national interest required that it be on the side of the Arabs. But he uh, initially agreed to a series of arms deals which built up the Israeli army and especially the Israeli Air Force. Israel was able to purchase from France three types of planes. One was called the Fuga Magistar, which was a small training jet that nobody else in the world ever used for combat, but the Israelis would use it for close support combat in tank warfare. It was a one-seater, small, rather slow jet. The second jet that they bought was a Mystère. Mystère was a bomber, French bomber. And the third uh, plane that they bought was the famous Mirage, which today still, in its updated version, is the mainstay of the French uh, Air Force. Uh, The company that produced these planes was owned by a Jew, not much of a Jew. Uh, In fact, later in life, he even converted. He became a Roman Catholic. But at this time, he was a Jew, and uh, he received a license from the French government, and he sold the planes to Israel, and Israel uh, developed them, they incorporated them in the Israeli Air Force. It became the Israeli Air Force, these three types of French jets. For various reasons, the world and the Arabs were unaware of the potency of this plane. They were unaware of the fact that uh, these jets used correctly could negate a great deal of the Arab firepower and that uh, the jets had uh, great uh, potential if used in a uh, in an opportunistic fashion also israel bought gunboats from france special small gunboats uh, not buying battleships or cruisers or even destroyers but small gunboats but very highly mobile and with a tremendous amount of firepower rockets missiles so that a gunboat this type of a gunboat was the equal in firepower to world war ii battleships at uh, a fraction of the cost and at a fraction of the size and with a great deal more mobility and less vulnerability to attack the planes and to other surface vessels. 
By this time, uh, David Ben-Gurion had passed from the scene as the leader of the uh, Labor Party, and the new Prime Minister of Israel after Sharet was Levi Eshkol. Eshkol was a uh, very good technocrat. He was a person that ran the government very well, but he was not an inspiring figure at all. He was not a good speaker, and uh, he uh, had very little of the charisma that would be necessary at this uh, moment of crisis. In world Jewry, everybody, we all rolled along in a, in a fool's paradise that uh, Israel would always be protected and that the world would protect it and that there would be no problems. That was further fueled by the fact that the United Nations had its peacekeeping force present in the Sinai. It had its peacekeeping force present at the entrance to the Gulf of Aqaba to guarantee free shipping. And even though Nasser had violated his word and did not allow any free ship, Israeli shipping, or even any ships to Israel in the Suez Canal, and the state of Israel and the Jewish world felt it could live with that inconvenience, and that the war was not a problem. It wasn't going to happen. The Arabs weren't going to attack again. And that was the uh, situation at the, in the early part of May 1967. But Nasser, in May 1967, on the basis of the reports that he received from his Russian advisors and reports that he received regarding Israeli strength as well, felt that the time was propitious, that he now had an army well-trained enough to mount a bitter and complete war and that he would be able to uh, conquer Israel handily. And he therefore decided that he would not wait any longer. His internal problems and his foreign problems were such a nature that he felt that by delaying he would only compound the problem. So in order to solve the problem, he was going to go to war. Uh, the Israelis celebrated their uh, Independence Day parade uh, on the 19th anniversary of the State of Israel in May 1967 blissfully oblivious to what was going to happen in the next three weeks. This was a storm that blew up overnight. It uh, had almost no uh, precedent in the speed that it occurred and in the lethal danger that uh, now was present. Nasser announced that the Egyptian army was going to go on maneuvers in the Sinai. Uh, going on maneuvers in the Sinai was a violation of the agreement, of the uh, peacekeeping agreement between uh, Israel and Egypt and the United Nations that had uh, prevailed since the end of the Sinai campaign. Again, but Sinai belonged to Egypt and Egypt had sovereignty over it, and there really was no way to keep the Egyptian army out. So the Egyptian army crossed with great fanfare and in extremely large numbers. They crossed the uh, Suez Canal and came east into the Sinai. Israel protested, but nothing happened. 
Nasser, uh, in the time-honored uh, manner, uh, it's almost a repeat of the story of Hitler, where he took one country and then he would digest it and look around and see if there were any repercussions, and if there weren't any, so then he would he'd go on to the next move. Nasser saw that nothing happened. The United Nations took no action. No one took any action. So then he moved to the second step. The second step is that he would prevent... Israeli shipping from coming up the Gulf of Su- uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. No ship would be able to sail past Sharm el Sheikh. And he installed guns. He claims he claimed to have installed guns. Later, it was found out to have been a fake. But he claimed to have installed guns, artillery guns, on the point at Sharm el Sheikh, and that any ships that were bound into the Gulf of Aqaba that were headed for the Israeli port of Eilat would be shot at. Now, this was an interference with the hallowed principle of international law, free navigation of the waterways of the world, to which all of the major countries in the world had signed an agreement. They were all committed that such a thing would not be allowed. Poor little Israel went and complained, and everybody told them, you know, to take it easy. They'll try and work it out. Naturally, uh, there were the, the United States uh, were, uh, considered... The United States considered sending one of its own flagships up the Gulf of Aqaba to test the blockade to see whether NASA really meant it. But for all the uh, good intentions and good ideas, nothing happened. President Johnson made soothing remarks. Uh, Israel saw a pattern beginning to emerge. The next pattern... The next piece of the pattern was when uh, Nasser ordered the United Nations peacekeeping troops off of Egyptian territory. He said that they were only there at the sufferance of the Egyptian government. The Egyptian government that uh, invited them there in 1957, now it was 10 years later, and he was inviting them all to go home. The general secretary of the United Nations, who then was a Burmese, who knew? Uh agreed that Nasser had a right to do so. We have very bad experiences with Secretary Generals of the United Nations. First, Mr. Waldheim, who's our noted friend, and then this Burmese. It just uh, it just doesn't go for us. I don't think you can get the job if you're... Uh, <coughs> if you're in good standing with certain peoples in the world. In any event, the uh, United Nations withdrew its peacekeeping force. Uh, the Gen- Secretary General flew t- and to Egypt and had conferences with Nasser, but it all came to nothing. And again, you had uh, shipping blocked in the Gulf of Aqaba. You had the United Nations peacekeeping forces removed. And you had a large is- Egyptian army in the Sinai moving towards the Israeli border. Now Israel began to take notice. And Israel warned Egypt uh, not to continue along that line because uh, Israel would certainly defend itself and go to war. The United States, as is its custom, issued pronouncements that everybody should, you know, take a shower and two aspirin and rest up and they'll be back to them later. 
And that really didn't do anything for anyone, except it showed, again, the impotence that of America in a situation such as this, where it really, really wasn't, it had no more influence on the situation. The United States attempted to talk to Russia, to have Russia restrain Egypt, but instead of restraining Egypt, Russia encouraged Egypt. Russia felt that it had everything to gain here. Uh, if the Arab states won, it would enhance Russia. If the Arab states lost, it would make them more dependent upon Russia. That was Russia's uh, terribly uh, cynical policy. But the policy was correct. That Russia could not lose. If the Arabs won, then the Russians won. If the Arabs lost, then where else was, were the Arabs going to go except the Russia? Who else was going to save them? And that's exactly how it worked out for Russia. So Russia had nothing to lose by this, everything to gain, and Russia encouraged it, therefore. Now, Nasser, in his uh, diabolical plan, uh, wanted that Israel should be surrounded on all sides. It should not be a war of Egypt alone against Israel, because he was afraid, and deep down in his heart, that Israel would be able to mobilize a sufficient army and be able to defend itself successfully against Egypt. He therefore uh, had a conference with the leaders in Damascus, the Syrians. The Syrians have remained until today the most implacable foes of the state of Israel, the Syrians and the Iraqis, far more than any of the other Arabs. And the Syrians agreed to join in the venture. The Syrians agreed that they would shell the Israeli positions in the Galil from the Golan Heights, which they controlled. But they, uh, the uh, Syrians, uh, to a certain extent, double-crossed Nasser because they never sent their army into Israel in the Six-Day War. They shelled, and they fired upon the Israeli targets, and they pinned down a certain number of troops, but they never sent their army in unlike the Yom Kippur War, which we'll also discuss later, where the Assyrians were the main threat almost. What really uh, clinched the matter that there was going to be a war was the behavior of King Hussein. Hussein was afraid that he would miss the train. He saw now that Syria and Egypt, his two arch enemies in the Middle East, had made an alliance. On paper, his military analysts showed him that, he, that there was a very strong likelihood that Egypt and Syria would win the war. They also convinced him that diplomatically the world would do nothing to support Israel. And therefore, he was afraid that he would lose because if Egypt and Syria were successful, then they would come not only against the Israeli part of Palestine, they would come against the Jordanian part of Palestine also. And he was afraid that he'd be expelled from the old city of Jerusalem and lose that stature and lose the trade and the commerce and the tourism. Therefore, when he added it up, he had to go into the war. The Israelis always mocked him afterwards, and they said that the... In 67, when he should have stayed out, he went in. And in 73, when he should have went in, he stayed out. 
but in, he decided that he would go in. And he met with Nasser. You have the famous picture of the newspapers of the Times, uh, how embracing the two arch enemies who said uh, absolutely terribly uh, insulting things about each other and their ancestry and everything else, uh, embraced in the, uh, in the hug of uh, anticipated victory over the state of Israel and throwing the Jews into the sea. And the Jordanians placed their army under the command of an Egyptian general so that there would be a unified command there was one Egyptian general that was in charge of all the armies, and it was all under one unified command. The uh, alliance with Nasser by Hussein sealed the fate of the Six-Day War. Israel knew then that it had to go to war because of the fact that they were now surrounded on all sides and that uh, it was not a matter that would go away. Uh, Abba Ibn, who then was uh, the Israeli foreign minister, traveled the world, stopping at all the world's capitals to enlist the good wishes of the world leaders, but nobody would do anything to stop it. And there, Abba Ibn got the first inkling from General de Gaulle that France was also about ready to change sides before the Six-Day War which de Gaulle told, warned uh, even that if Israel goes to war, it will lose the friendship of France. Well, Israel had no choice. Uh, Eben had outlined to de Gaulle very clearly. So de Gaulle signaled the change of policy, which after the Six-Day War would become so evident, uh, France thought uh, sought a uh, means to reestablish its influence in the Arab world. I need not tell you that the Jews throughout the world were frightened out of their minds. Because here was the specter of the Holocaust happening all over again, barely 25 years after the first one. The state would be destroyed. There would, no one would defend it. And the uh, Arabs, in their typical hyperbole, they broadcast all sorts of threats, you know, the... Jewish women, prepare yourselves. Uh, we're going to throw all the men into the sea. You know, everybody. We... And there was a man by the name of Ahmed Shukeri, who was the head of the Palestine Liberation Organization. That was in its first Gilgal before, uh, before, before Yasser. Yasser didn't have a beard then. Before Yasser took it over, so this guy Shukeri, who was uh, a Saudi and he was a, a foul-mouthed, evil person, he said the worst things, the worst threats, and he said them on public uh, interviews and television, what he was going to do. And therefore, the Jewish world trembled. It trembled. If I, I, I don't know. I don't remember uh, very well Hitler, but the impression that I had is that there was the fear was greater than even before Hitler of what was going to happen. And I remember that we had a day of prayer in uh, my synagogue in Miami Beach. Uh, there were days of prayer throughout the Jewish world. I mean, the synagogue was packed. People walked in off the streets. People who hadn't been in a synagogue Yom Kippur maybe for 25 years. They didn't know what to do with themselves. 
because they felt the imminent destruction of the Jewish people. I also remember as a personal vignette that I don't know what got into people, but the, uh, the, the rabbinate in the United States, the combined rabbinate, all sent out messages that we should all go visit our local priests and ministers to try and enlist public support for Israel. And you look back at it, it was absolutely ludicrous. But I remember that we had a very uh, beautiful Episcopal church not far from us, and I tried to get an appointment with the, with the uh, rector of the church, and he wouldn't see me. He just wouldn't see me. And I don't think that my experience was uh, isolated. The rest of the world was more worried about the baseball season, about the important things that were going to happen. And the Jewish people felt isolated, frightened, just uh, cut off completely from any solace or hope. The Israeli army mobilized. And they stood mobilized for almost two weeks. And that was very expensive. In Israel, the mobilization, and it was, we'll, uh, I'll point out to you later that part of the problem in the, uh, in the Yom Kippur War was the expense of mobilizing the army. And they, they had had so many false alarms and mobilized them so many times, and every time you mobilize them, it cost them three or eight or ten million dollars or something. So they decided that this time they wouldn't mobilize. You know, they were going to save the three million. So they were at standing an army at, for almost two weeks. And uh, Dayan, who uh, was, uh, they formed a government of national unity. So, so serious was the situation that they formed a government of national unity. So serious was the situation that the left wing, the Marah, brought in Menachem Begin into the government as a minister without portfolio, but as a minister in the government. I want you to know that Begin, uh, Begin was thrown out of the Knesset with regularity. Ben-Gurion, in all the years that Begin was in the Knesset, never referred to him by name. He said, the person who was sitting next to member of Knesset, Bader. And uh, they brought him in. They made a wall-to-wall -wall coalition. Eshkol made a speech to the nation to be strong, and he broke down in the middle of the speech. It was the most depressing thing imaginable. I have that speech recorded here, but I'm not going to play it. But uh, I, I, it's something to hear, that he's, he broke in the middle of the speech telling everybody else to be strong. And the, no one knew what was going to happen. Uh, Dayan took a commanding role as Minister of Defense, and Dayan insisted that Israel strike first, that the only hope in this war was a what is necessarily called a preemptive strike. And in order to put the enemy off, uh, he made an announcement that he feels that the crisis is ending. In the other two weeks, they've been standing there mobilized. Nothing happens. He doesn't think anything is going to happen, and that part of the Israeli army is being demobilized which he did. He sent them home for Shabbos and brought them back Saturday night. Also at great expense. But that was part Israel now engaged in this war of nerves. And on Monday morning, in the first week in June in 1967, the war began. 
I remember in, in being in shul for the first minion in the morning and people came in and said it. I remember that people didn't go to work that way. People didn't do anything. People just stayed. They stayed in shul. They stayed just, people didn't go anywhere. And because of the fact that the Israeli uh, radio went on blackout as far as news was concerned, during the, almost the first 18 hours of the war, there was no news, and the Arabs broadcast their news naturally. So their news was they're, they're in Tel Aviv, they're in Jerusalem, they're bombing, they're destroying, they're killing. Uh, what happened was that the Arabs believed their own propaganda. Hussein went into the war because he heard Nasser announce that the Israeli Air Force was destroyed. Nasser got on the radio and said he destroyed the Israeli Air Force. So Hussein went into the war. What had really happened was that on the morning, that Monday morning, Israel launched a surprise attack and in an hour and a half destroyed the entire Arab Air Forces of Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. Over 500 planes were destroyed at the loss of less than, I think it was 19 planes for the Israelis. Most of the Egyptian planes were caught on the ground. They attacked at tea time, 8.15 in the morning. Everybody went to get his cup of tea, and they caught 95% of the planes on the ground and destroyed them. Uh, they flew so low, they flew as low as six feet over the Mediterranean for almost 70 miles. I mean, that's some job of being a pilot, at flying at speeds of uh, sound and over the sound barrier in order to escape the radar. And the Arab Air Forces were destroyed. Once the Arab Air Forces were destroyed, then Dayan said the war was won already. You still had to fight the war, but, but the tactical advantage had changed immediately. Azer Weitzman was then the commander of the Air Force, General Mordechai Hod, others, and they put across a, uh, a, an unbelievable feat of arms in being able to turn the planes around in record time, sending them, every plane almost hit its target. It was just, it was a, it was a classic example of uh, the destruction of an air force by another air force. It never had there been such a lopsided battle. Then Israel attacked on the Egyptian front. The, Egypt, the Israelis were divided into three main tank columns. One was led by Sharon, one was led by a man called Yafi, Mordechai Yafi, who later became the head of the Israeli Natural Forest Preserves. And the third was a general by the name of Tal. And these three tank corps burst into the Gaza Strip and, and defeated the Egyptian army, encircled the Egyptian army, and burst into the Sinai, and the Egyptian army was done away with in three days surrounded, uh, shot by planes. There, is a, there are famous pictures, uh, if you'll see, of the entire Mitla Pass, which is the road, the pass through the mountains in the Sinai. Just end-to-end -end Egyptian vehicles in a line, all shot up, burned, destroyed, trucks, tanks, artillery. The panic was on. Over uh, 5,000 Egyptian soldiers surrendered immediately. And the Israelis were at the Suez in record time. It, they got to the Suez faster than they did in the Sinai campaign. 
when that happened, uh, Nasser, there was nothing between the Israelis and Cairo. Uh, Nasser panicked very badly after announcing that he was winning the war and winning the war and winning the war. He all of a sudden was on the verge of losing his country. Hussein, as I mentioned to you, made the error of coming into the war. Hussein attacked in Jerusalem, trying to capture the uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the Jordanians attacked Government House, which was the British uh, High Commissioner's residence, and after uh, and that was the United Nations uh, headquarters. And after a short battle, the Jordanians won it, and then the Israelis counterattacked, and the Israelis took it from them. Then Israel decided that it was going to bring some of the troops from the Sinai, because that war was won already. They were going to bring some of the troops up and fight for Jerusalem. The fight for Jerusalem was concentrated in uh, a number of places. One place was Ammunition Hill, which, as the name implies, was a British ammunition fortress which protected East Jerusalem, and the Jordanians had extensive bunkers and defenses. And the paratroopers on uh, Tuesday night and on Wednesday morning of the war captured a high casualty, that, that piece. When they, when they had that piece, so then the Jordanians were outflanked. They had to move their men. The Israelis reached Mount Scopus, and then they reached Mount of Olives, the Augusta Victoria Hospital, going around the back of Jerusalem, around the east side of Jerusalem, until finally they had isolated the uh, area of the old city itself. And the old city they attacked on uh, Wednesday morning in a, uh, in a, uh, in a uh, charge through Lion's Gate, through the northeastern gate of the city, and miraculously the Jordanians fled. They did not really put up much resistance. If it would have been house-to-house fighting, if it would have been uh, any sort of uh, concerted effort, if they wanted to make it Stalingrad, then who knows what would have happened. But the, the Jordanian army fled, and in fleeing allowed the Israelis to capture the old city and to capture the western wall, the Kotel Amarovi. I want you to hear, I have a record uh, of the Israeli news broadcast, the live news broadcast of the capture of the wall, and you'll also hear the blowing of the shofar by Rabbi Gorin, who then was the chief chaplain of the Israeli army. You'll hear the gunfire in the background. You'll also hear the memorial prayer that he made for the fallen soldiers and the weeping of the men as they came to the Kotel. So if you'll listen to this, please. ואנחנו צרודים עכשיו מצעקות ההתלהבות וההתרגשות שנכנסנו פנימה בראש כל השיירה. החפק שלנו, אנזחל, פרץ את השער, דרש על אופנוע, עבר במחנה ירדני, ועלינו ראשונים ובהתלהבות עצומה, ישר עינה אל הרחבה. מוישלה, סגני, מזה הרבה שנים, רץ מיד עם כמה חבר'ה והניפו את הדגל לכותל המערבי. ועכשיו כל העיר העתיקה בידינו, ואנחנו מאוד מאוד מאושרים. 
אני יורד ברגע זה, ברגע זה, אני יורד במדרגות אל הכותל. אינני אדם דתי, מעולם לא הייתי, אבל זהו הכותל, ואני נוגע באבני הכותל המערבי. ויצרו בצרור החיים את נשמתם 
moment, I remember I was, uh, I was sitting in a car in Miami Beach and I heard the bulletin on the radio that the old city fell and the, the Jordanians had surrendered it and moved it. There was an old man from Shul, his name was Mr. Shamitz, all of us show him, I remember it. So he ran up to me and he embraced me so, I mean, Jews felt that, you know, that they were vindicated. For an instant, you at least felt that you were vindicated. And that it was an open, uh, an open revelation of, uh, of a hand in history that sometimes we'd find hard to see. The uh, freeing of Jerusalem naturally forced the uh, Jordanian army and the Arabs to vacate the entire West Bank. They were outflanked, they were <coughs> harried and hounded by the Israeli Air Force, who were pounded across the Jordan River, and along with the Jordanians, about 100,000 Arabs also fled, further compounding the Arab refugee problem. And the great Arab refugee camp at Jericho, if you go there today, it's still all deserted. They all fled across the river. And Hussein, uh, also one of the memorable pictures, uh, unshaven, haggard, tired, beaten, got on television and announced, you know, the defeat. And he cursed out all the other Arabs for fooling him. And they were broken. And the Israelis decided that they would settle the score with Syria now also. Beginning on Friday morning... They brought their troops, and many of these troops are the same troops they fought in the Sinai, and then the best battalions they brought up to Jerusalem, and after Jerusalem they brought them up to fight again at the Golan. So some of them fought three times, three major battles in the week. It's a little like uh, the story of the uh, famous main regiment in the uh, Battle of Gettysburg that uh, Lee attacked uh, the first day on the right flank, and they were there, so to give them rest, they moved them to the left flank the next day, and then they were attacked there, and then to further give them rest, so the Meade moved them to the center, and the last day the Pickett's Charge was at the center of the line. So the same regiment really fought the whole battle of Gettysburg. And a little of that happened here also. The Golan was an impregnable fortress. If you go there today, you see it. It's just unbelievable. Impregnable fortress. Russian uh, system of defenses, mines, uh, bunkers, artillery, uh, machine guns. And there the Air Force was of aid, but the Air Force alone certainly could not do it because of the fact that you had to conquer it foot by foot, step by step, grenade by grenade. And the Israelis uh, in a... Uh, 
what was a textbook exhibition of how foot soldiers can uh, dislodge an enemy, no matter how strong, from a defensive position, were able to push the Egyptian, uh, push the Syrians out of all three lines of defenses. And the Israelis captured uh, the peak of Mount Hermon. If you want to know what the peak of Mount Hermon means, when you're up there, you can see every plane landing at Damascus Airport. It's 20 miles from Damascus Airport. You can see with the binoculars every plane. You can read the markings on every plane. And today there's a great Israeli radar station there and everything. It's the highest point in the Middle East. The Syrians recaptured it in the 1973 war, and the Israelis in the last hours of the war before the ceasefire, again at great cost, recaptured, recaptured it again. The Israelis pushed all the way to the city of Kanetra. The entire Golan, the northern Golan, the eastern Golan, the southern Golan, all were taken by the Israelis. The, Egyptians, the Syrians were cleared out completely. The Israelis worked almost ten years to remove the minefields just to remove the minefields, and there still are areas in the Golan where the mines have not been removed. And now, from the small little Israel that, uh, that was on the verge of being annihilated, it became the giant imperial Israel. Russia, true to its plan, immediately broke diplomatic relations with Israel. The uh, United Nations voted a ceasefire, which Egypt and the Arabs accepted, because without accepting the ceasefire, their governments would have fallen. Uh, Israel could have captured Damascus and Cairo and Amman, though God knows what they would do with them. And Israel felt convinced in the wake of this great military victory, a victory that, by the way, uh, Israel sustained about 700 a little over 700 dead and about 2,000 wounded. But uh, the, uh, the shine of the victory, the radiance, the glory of the victory was such that it overwhelmed the personal tragedy that was involved. Whereas in the Yom Kippur War, where Israel suffered subst more substantial casualties, the casualties were more bitterly felt because the shine of the victory wasn't there. And in uh, Dayan's famous words, on the next day, on the after the after the Six Day War was over, so Dayan's famous words there, he said, "Well, I'm waiting at the telephone for Hussein to call." The Israelis were convinced somehow that the Arabs would now make peace, that the Arabs would trade peace for the territory that Israel acquired. Had the Arabs done so in 1967, they certainly could have struck the deal. Uh, politically, every party in Israel would have allowed it to happen. It would have given back, I don't know about East Jerusalem and the Kotel, but aside from that, everything could have, everything could have gone back. But nobody called. And the Arabs played it true to their... Uh, to their uh, policy, and their policy is always to fight the last war, always to make peace on the last terms. The Arabs said, now we're willing to let you have the partition board of 1948. Well, that was too late for that. Now they were talking about, now they could have had the 1967 borders. In 1973, they said we would settle for the 67 borders. It was too late. 
but the uh, the success and the victory in the Six Day War, as we will see, was the was a great opportunity. Not all of the opportunities that were present then were exploited. Not in the political sense, not in the military sense, not in the social sense, not in the religious sense. But a whole new world opened up. And a whole new uh, viewpoint of Israel also opened up in the world. The Jews were enormously proud. And the non-Jews had a great deal of resentment. And in the United Nations and in other diplomatic arenas, a great deal of the resentment spilled over. And it became a, it became very fashionable to look at Israel not with uh, not with favorable eyes, not to be prejudiced towards it. Because in Golda Meir's uh, famous statement, I heard Golda Meir on the fifth day of the war. She came to Miami Beach for a bond drive. That uh, it's also one of the most moving scenes that I ever saw. Uh, she was in Miami Beach Thursday in the afternoon. And she got up to speak, and she spoke about, again, the conquest of Jerusalem. And she was one old tough lady, broke down and wept. And the entire audience wept with her so. And people, people, not that they gave money. There was a man that came up, and he gave her cufflinks. He had pure gold cufflinks. He said, take it all. You know what to do. So there arose this question, what to do? I, uh, I have uh, my friends from Chicago who went on Aliyah in the 1950s. So they always tell me the first Shavuos after the Six-Day War, this was the week before Shavuos. So the first Shavuos, the night of Shavuos for the Six-Day War, so it was the first Yontiv that the Kotel was available, and it wasn't like the Kotel now with the big plaza and everything. It was a narrow alleyway through the Arab neighborhood. And they said, starting three in the morning, all Jerusalem walked. You could hear like, like an army marching. Everybody went. And it was religious, observant, not, made no difference. The, everybody went. And they, they, I know some of them have told me that they still live from that experience. Some of them told me that when Mashiach will come, so that's what it'll sound like. You know, the, the sound of footsteps in the night from every place in the city. People got up three in the morning to start so that four o'clock when the sun rose in Jerusalem, everybody would be there for sunrise for the Yont of Shavuos at the, at the Kota. Oh, it was a dramatic moment in Jewish history, a moment that there will be other moments, certainly, and the other moments will perhaps eclipse this one. But in our time, rarely has a Jew ever had an opportunity to feel the emotions or to experience that type of feeling and sensitivity towards Jewish history and the Jewish past that the Six-Day War provided for Unfortunately, there's always the day afterwards. The day afterwards, it's hard to assess it. It's hard to take the emotion and translate it into action, into positive results. Uh, hard to produce what should be produced. And that really will be the continuation of the story. But we have never come back to that level. We've never come back to that, to that achievement, to that time. But in terms of what was achieved at that moment, 
That has to be one of the high watermarks, certainly, of our generation and an indication of the capabilities and the hidden resources and even spiritual resources because there was a great spiritual reawakening for a short period of time and the unity and the strength that lies within the Jewish people. Thank you, Rabbi Barrel Wine. That was the uh, topic on the Six-Day War. Very interesting, fascinating uh, talk by Rabbi Wine. We'll be getting to another one of his uh, discussions entitled The Land of Israel as a Jewish Value, right after the news. It is uh, 8.04 in the morning here on JM Sunday. Matis Weingast with you, the 19th of July, the 3rd of Av. We're in our nine days format. If you're studying Dafyomi, it's Nadarim 56. As I mentioned earlier, there is a uh, heat advisory today for the New York, New Jersey area. Right now it's 79 degrees and clear. It's expected to go up to 97 degrees. And uh, also clear, but between 12 noon and uh, about 6 p.m. or so, it's expected to be uh, temperatures feeling over 100. So you have to be careful out there and uh, make sure you're well hydrated and stay in the shade if you can. Tonight going down to a clear 79 degrees. In uh, Jerusalem, well, we'll hear in just a minute what the weather is like in Jerusalem because uh, it's time for our news from Israel. Hannah Julian, Middle East news analyst and senior correspondent at JewishPress.com, joins us every Sunday morning to bring us up to date on the latest happenings in the state of Israel. Good morning, Hannah Julian. Good morning, Matas. Iran's Ayatollah Ali Khamenei reminded everyone this weekend that regardless of the smiles negotiators showed while signing the nuclear deal with the United States and world powers in Vienna on Tuesday, Iran will continue its struggle against America and her allies, first and foremost Israel. That was the message from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu this morning in his opening statement to the cabinet. Netanyahu said that if anyone thought that Iran's exaggerated concessions would change its policies, they received a defiant response this weekend in the Iranian ruler's aggressive speech. The Iranians are not at all hiding the fact that they will use the tens of billions of dollars they receive as a result of the new agreement in order to further terrorism. Yeshatid opposition party chairman Yair Lapid said yesterday that it was Israel's failed approach that allowed the deal to be signed. Lapid is specifically blaming Netanyahu for the success of the deal, the former finance minister is calling for the creation of a commission of inquiry to produce a public report on what he's calling Netanyahu's failed foreign policy. The person behind Iran's Project 111, the project that was to build a nuclear bomb, is among those who will now enjoy the sanctions relief that's in place. Known as the father of the Iranian nuclear bomb, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh is a senior officer in the elite Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. He's also a professor of physics, and, and he has three different passports. And he uses those to go shopping for the latest in nuclear technology. Another person on the list for the relief is Iranian terror king Qasem Soleiman. Meanwhile, UN International Atomic Energy Agency head Yukio Amano is slated to release a report uh, by December 15th. That's when the world will know 
supposedly anyway, whether Iran is meeting the terms of the new agreement or not. If it is, gradual sanctions relief will begin at that time, according to the agreement. The U.S. will remove 444 companies and individuals, 76 planes, and 227 ships off of the blacklist. After eight years, the embargo on missile technology sales also will be lifted as well. A delegation of Israeli water companies is heading to California later this week. They're coming from the fields of water purification and management, and they're going to meet with various companies like Costco, Coca-Cola, Anheuser-Busch, and others, as well as government departments. They're going to be talking about how to help California deal with water management and how to minimize the issues it's now facing due to the severe drought that has struck the state over the past several years. The trip was organized by the Economy Ministry's Foreign Trade Administration and the Israel Export Institute. A delegation from California will visit Israel in October to check out the Waytech exhibition in Tel Aviv as well. The body of a Jewish soldier from Poland who lost his life in World War II has just been found 70 years after he disappeared on the battlefield. Israel Grisman was killed in a battle inside a forest near the city of Leningrad. His body was found by volunteers who still go out to the field periodically to search for the remains of soldiers who went missing in action decades ago. And when they found his remains along with the equipment and a waterproof, a waterproof capsule with his name written inside, they actually tracked down his grandson here in Israel, who has the same name. This one was a commander fighting the Nazis when he fell in battle. He was a father of three, born in 1900 in Lublin. He served in the Polish military in the First World War. He was imprisoned by the Germans and then released. The family escaped to Russia when the Nazis rose to power, and he then joined the Red Army and was sent to the front where he later fell in battle. His body was found by history students from St. Petersburg at the beginning of May of this year. He was buried two days later. His grandson was asked to make a headstone for the grave, and he was awarded a medal posthumously for his grandfather. A new Israeli startup is partnering with IBM to create a digital doctor-patient platform. This is for the geeks in our listenership. The digital doc is supposed to be a fully functional first step for folks who need health advice via telemedicine. It can be adapted to fit a WhatsApp, or it can go through a computer hologram. Israeli inventor Itamar Bisson says that his group is teaching IBM's Watson computer to be a doctor. He's hoping the product will be on the market within the next two years. As we go into the first week of the month of Av, the weather here in Israel is bright and sunny, as I imagine it is over there, Matis, but with partly cloudy skies, and just as it is in New York also, a lot of heat here as well. Humid along the shoreline, nice and dry in the Negev, and up in the mountain regions as well. High so far around 90 in Jerusalem, it's climbing also up to about 100 in the desert and uh, along the coast. Partly cloudy at night as well, lows around 70. Have a great week, everyone. See you in about two weeks. Have an easy fast for Tishabov. I'm Connor Julian for JM Sunday. That's our news from Israel. Thanks, Connor Julian. Have an easy fast also, and uh, 
You'll be on hiatus for next week on Tisha B'Av. We'll be here with a program, uh, but we'll see you in two weeks right here on JM Sunday exclusively on the Nachum Siegel Network. We're going to go back to uh, a uh, another selection from Rabbi Beryl Wine. This one entitled The Land of Israel as a Jewish Value. I'm not sure we'll be able to finish it during the show, but it certainly is uh, interesting to hear most of it as we do. It's 8.12 in the morning here on the Nachum Siegel Network. When you get a chance, like us on Facebook at JM Sunday. Programming continues all day long here on the stream. Nachum will be back on JM in the AM tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. And Mayor Weingarten will be on at 9 a.m. exclusively on the stream with the Israel Show. Here's Rabbi Beryl Wine with The Land of Israel as a Jewish Value. Tonight's uh, topic uh, deals with Eretz Israel as a value. Now, and I'm talking as a uh, political statement or as an idea of uh, Jewish nationalism, but as a religious value, because this entire series deals with values, and the value of Eretz Israel as uh, an idea. Uh, is one of the most supreme values in all of Torah and all of the Jewish people. I read an article uh, before Yom Yushalayim written by the chief rabbi of Haifa, Rav Shor Yashuv Cohen, uh, who uh, the thrust of the article uh, was a remembrance of his experiences in Yushalayim. He was captured in the 1948 war. He spent nine months in the Jordanian prison camp, lost part of his leg. Uh, and he writes about his experiences uh, regarding Yerushalayim over the past 57 years. But one of the things that he pointed out is, uh, and he said it very clearly, he said that Medinat Yisrael, the state of Israel, is meant to be a conduit is meant to be a means to achieve Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. And in other words, that the state and our nationalism and everything that we have accomplished, that's not the end, that's only the means. And the means, uh, he quotes naturally from his father, the Nazir, and uh, from Rav Kook, uh, that the physical rebuilding of the Jewish people is a necessary prerequisite for the spiritual rebuilding of the Jewish people. But it is not the end. The end is that spiritual rebuilding. As he calls it, it's the rebuilding of Eretz Israel and not just of Medina Israel. So we speak about Eretz Israel here as a value, as one of the ideas... Uh, that has been constant throughout Jewish history. And it's been constant. It's interesting whether the Jewish people were here in the land of Israel or whether they were in the diaspora, in the exile. Uh, Because uh, we see in the Nevi'im, the Nevi'im always speak about how does Eretz Yisrael react uh, to the behavior of the people who live there. As though Eretz Yisrael is a living thing. It's not a passive piece of land, but it's a living organism. And this living organism reacts to what happens 
on it, around it, through it, and that that's the value, uh, that's the idea of what Eretz Yisrael represents. Now, the Jewish people spent most of their history outside the land of Israel. Uh, we're a people that are uh, 33, over 3,300 years old from Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and most of the time we have not been here. And whenever we have been here, uh, it has not been sweetness and light. There were periods, good periods, the period of Dovid HaMelech, the period of Shlomo HaMelech, 80 years. Then it started to fall apart. Uh, in the time of uh, the second temple, the period of the Hashmanoim, so the first hundred years uh, was a good time, and then it fell apart. And it's been a difficult, difficult situation always regarding living in the land of Israel. And the reason for that is because we are trying to translate a spiritual value into an everyday life, into a state that has to function, into all of the problems of everyday living. It's much easier to deal with it as an imaginary thing, because then you never have any disappointments, and you don't have to worry about it, and you don't have to collect taxes, and you don't have the, the whole problem. But how do we make it work practically uh, that is a major challenge, and that challenge has faced the Jewish people every time they've been here in the land of Israel. So we find that uh, during the time of Yoshua and the Shoftim, so during the time of Yoshua, the Jewish people still were afraid of Yoshua because they still were afraid of Moshe. Moshe had such a lasting influence upon them that as long as Yoshua was here, they still thought that Moshe was here. But when Yoshua died, so then Vayibi Shvota Shoftim, we read now in the Megillah of Ruth. Shvota uh, Shoftim, Rashi says, the judges were judged. The Jewish people said, in effect, Miata, who are you to tell me to do anything? Everybody did whatever they wanted to. It was the ultimate pluralistic society. Do whatever you want. So then it's chaos falls apart. So then God has to remind them that they're Jews, right? So he sends the Plishtim, he sends the Amalekim, he sends the Knanim. All sorts of problems. And it takes time until David HaMelech comes on the scene uh, that the situation somehow becomes ameliorated. Now it becomes livable. And uh, during the last years of David, the last 20 years of David, and the first 25, 30 years of Shlomo HaMelech, so then it is finally what Eretz Yisrael is supposed to be. And they build a temple, and everything is wonderful. But people, especially the Jewish people, cannot stand prosperity. They cannot stand that everything should be wonderful, so they have to make it not so wonderful. And Shlomo wanders away, and then there's a rebellion, and Yeroham ben Nevot, and then they split into two kingdoms, and then they become idolaters and pagans, and that's the story. So because of that, Eretz Yisrael is the most sensitive topic to discuss. And I hesitated to put it down on the sheet as one of the values to discuss, 
because I'm well aware that whatever one says uh, can unfortunately be subject to misinterpretation and also because it's so sensitive because we're living here and we're part of it and therefore we feel it perhaps differently than in the theory of Eretz Yisrael. The Gemara says, Gimul Matonos Nosan HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yisrael. God gave us three gifts. Below Nosan Elabi Yisurim. And all three come with great pain. The three gifts are Torah. If you want to be a Talmud Chacham, if you want to study Torah, then it's sacrifice, it's Yisurim, it's uh, giving up hours and time. If you really want to be a great Talmud Chacham, so then it requires an enormous amount of concentration, willpower, it's Yisurim. It's not easy. Anyone who has ever opened the Daf Gemara and looked at it, the page itself is sufficient to dissuade you from going further. That three different fonts on the page, it's, uh, it's written in a language that uh, very difficult for us. We don't speak Aramaic anymore. And then you have Rashi on one side, and Tosas on the other side, and then you have uh, the Rosh on the back, and nobody agrees on anything with it. It's Biyasurim. If you want to accomplish something, then you have to pay for it. The second thing the Gemara says is Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael comes Biyasurim. It's a matona. So look at the language of the Talmud. The language of the Talmud is that it's a gift. Meaning we're not entitled. The language of Matona is always that you're not entitled. It's a gift. There are certain things in life that we think we're entitled to. But there, the Talmud, when it says Matona, so you're not entitled to be a Talmud Chacham, you have to earn it. You're not entitled there to Israel, you have to earn it. How do you earn it? Be Yisurin, right? And we can all testify what that means. The Jewish people for over the past hundred years here in Eretz Yisrael, every day is Yisurim. Every day is problems. Every day is blood. Every day is all of the difficulties that we're so well aware of. And the greatest Yisurim is that you don't see any way out of it. That's, you know, as long as you see a way out of it, then people, uh, people uh, almost are happy to absorb the Yisurim. But Yisurim on end... With no way out, so that already is a different level of pain. And the third gift that Gemara says is Olam eternity, immortality. So you only gain that also through sacrifice. You only gain that also through willing to undergo sacrifice and pain. So because of that, we have this great concept that Eretz soil has to be earned. Now you have another concept that God promised it to us. He told us from the beginning, He told Avram Avinu, I'm giving you this land, it's going to be yours. He told it to Yitzchak, He told it to Yaakov, He's told it to us from the beginning of time. This is your land, I'm giving it to you. The only thing is that when it comes uh, to the bottom line, uh, it's not our land. Avram Avinu wants uh, to bury his wife, Zorah. So he has to buy the Morris from the Bnei Ches, from Ephron, 
for, for an enormous amount of money. The Rashi there quotes the Medrash that says Avram, the, the greatness of Avram was that he didn't say to God, but you promised me, you said it's my land. What do you mean i got to pay him 400 shekel over La Socher, the best mint coins? You promised it to me. And Yitzchak digs wells all over the country, and all the wells the Philistines uh, take over, they stop them up, they throw them out. And Yitzchak does not say, but you promised me that the land is mine. And Yaakov Avinu, when he comes back from Lovan, so he has to buy the land by Shem. And he doesn't say again, you know, God, you promised me. You told me it would be mine. So that's part of the definition of Yisurin. Yisurin is when you have to buy and sacrifice for what is yours. What belongs to you already. You have to start all over again. Which is in essence what happened to the Jewish people over the last hundred years. If, whether it be through uh, the Karen Kayemet or through private funds or whatever, or purchase, you, you have to buy it all over again. Because of the fact that that's Eretz Yisrael and Nikonis be Yisurin. So we have to be prepared for that. We have to realize that on one hand it's ours. It was promised to us by God. And God's promises are valid. God's contract is never defaulted. And on the other hand, uh, we have to earn it. We have to buy it. We have to fight for it. We have to bleed for it. It's not ours. And that balance, uh, that contradiction almost, uh, lies at the heart of the Yisurian of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Talmud has very, the Talmud is very, very pro-Eretz Yisrael. Let's put it that way. And the Talmud uh, has almost a hidden anger, and this is the Babylonian Talmud, let alone the Yerushalmi, the uh, Talmud that was written in Eretz Yisrael. The Talmud has almost a hidden anger at people that don't come there to soil when they have an opportunity to do so. When the Jewish world had an opportunity to do so. But the Gemara says, for instance, by Ezra, that at the time of Ezra, most of the Jews stayed in Bovel. They didn't come back. And the Talmud says, Elu Olu Kachoma, if they would have come up in waves, it would have, if they would have come home, then the second temple would have had all of the spiritual glory and miracles that the first temple had. But because the Jews didn't want it, so God says, okay, so you don't want it, I, I don't want it either. It didn't come back. And throughout the history of the second temple, there were tremendous uh, Jewish communities all over the Mediterranean basin, in Rome, in Greece, in Bovel, in uh, uh, in Egypt, in Alexandria, the rabbis always held that against them. And therefore the rabbis said, for instance, Hoshivani Hashem, the Lord has made me dwell in darkness, Zu Talmudo Shalbovel. That's the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud, which the Gemara speaks about itself, is darkness because it was composed in Bovel. 
and uh, Bovel uh, had a very, very high spiritual state, great Talmidei Chachomim, great yeshivas, a great Jewish community. So let me just quote to you a few Gemaras, because the Gemara says that the land itself has a holiness to it. The land itself has a holiness to it. It's called Eretz HaKodesh, the Holy Land. So you don't hear it so much amongst Jews, but in the non-Jewish world, they still call it the Holy Land. Eretz HaKodesh, the land itself has holiness, independent of who is there, and independent of how people behave there. The land itself is holy. So the Gemara says, an interesting Gemara, Rabbi Brokio, Rabbi Lezer ben Pedos, Hoyumataylin Derech Shart Veria. Two of the Talmidim of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan had the great yeshiva in Tveria in the third century. So two of his Talmidim, Rabbi Brokia and Rabbi Lozer ben Pedos, uh, they were uh, taking a walk by the Yom Kinneret, by uh, the gate to Tveria. Now, in the ancient world, in the time of the Talmud, Tveria, as today, was a great burial ground. Had large Jewish cemeteries. The uh, great hill uh, on which the tomb of Reb Meir Balanes perches on top, that whole hill is a cemetery. It has thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of graves in it. Because the cemeteries at the time of the Talmud were caves that were dug into the side of the mountain. And that uh, because of the shortage of land... Uh, they uh, let the body decompose for a year and then they collected the bones and put them in an ossuary in a ceramic jar and that jar they put in the in the cave and then they had room to bury again it was a uh, different system than we are accustomed to in any event they are at the gates of Tveria and they see they're bringing bodies from Chutzlaretz, right, to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. So here we have two different opinions. And the two opinions are very sharply stated. And you can hear them both today as well. They resonate in our world. Who needs them? What value are they coming now to get buried here? When they were alive, they didn't come. They weren't interested to live in Eretz Yisrael. And now they come as corpses. And I say that this posik refers to them. That's my. Uh, country, my land, the land of Israel, you treated it abominably, that was while you were alive, you didn't come. And now you have come and you have defiled my country because a mace brings with it, Tuma brings with it defilement, the Misastem. So he's not very happy. You didn't come, he said, who needs you now? Omar lo Rabbi Elezer. So Rabbi Elezer ben Pedos said to him, no, 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 you're wrong. 
Lohi. It's not correct. Kivan Shehem Nigborim Beretz Yisrael. Since they will be buried in the land of Israel, Veniten Lahem Gush Ofor Shel Eretz Yisrael, and they will have the dust, the dirt of Eretz Yisrael will cover their bodies. Mechaperes, it brings forgiveness to them. It says, Vechiper Admoso Amo. Moshe Rabbeinu said, the land of Israel is a kapora for the people. And therefore, uh, if uh, they come even to be buried, so then the holiness of the land is such that that fact that they're buried here is alone sufficient to bring forgiveness for all their sins. Now, uh, we realize... Uh, that throughout the ages, the Jews desired to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. And they came, their bodies were brought from far distant countries in order to be able to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. And one of the few uh, uh, permissible uh, times when a body can be exhumed and reburied is when the body is taken from outside Eretz Yisrael to be reburied in the land of Israel. That's because the land itself is holy. And therefore, the holy soil of the land brings a kapora for the person, even if the person did not come during his or her lifetime. And uh, because of that, there was a custom, there still is the custom throughout the Jewish world, that even a Jew that passes away in the exile and is buried outside of Eretz soil. But uh, in the grave, uh, earth from Eretz Yisrael is always placed there. Because the earth of Eretz Yisrael is v'chiper admoso amo. And that's what he said, gush ofor Eretz Yisrael. A piece of the dust of the dirt of Eretz Yisrael is sufficient to bring a kapor for a person. So we see that one of the values of Eretz Yisrael is that it is holy. And the rule in Jewish law is If you are attached to purity, to holiness, then you become somewhat holy. It's, a, uh, it's an osmosis effect. It seeps into you, whether you want it or not. And therefore, Eretz Yisrael has that value that for the Jewish people it brings holiness to us. And it's one of the mitzvahs, there are two mitzvahs, the, the Bali Musa said, there are two mitzvahs that a Jew can, the, the word in Lithuania was that he can walk in with his boots. The one is in the sukkah, right? You go into the sukkah, so you have the mitzvah. And one is Eretz Yisrael. You come to Eretz Yisrael, you walk in, you're here, that's the mitzvah. So that's the only, those are the only mitzvahs that, so to speak, you know, you can do with your boots on. You just walk in. You don't, doesn't require, uh, any great thought on your part as much as it requires just your presence in a certain place. Second idea regarding Eretz Israel. I want to walk in front of God in the land of the living. 
So the Gemara says, Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael is the land of the living. And the Gemara says that Tchiyas HaMesim begins in Eretz Yisrael. And we have that concept that's called Gilgul Mechilos, that uh, when the dead are resurrected, so there will be tunnels that will exist uh, that will uh, be able that the Jews who are buried outside Eretz Yisrael will be able to roll to Eretz Yisrael because in Eretz Yisrael is where Tchiyas HaMesim will be. By tradition, uh, Tchiyas HaMesim will begin on the Mount of Olives, on Harazesim. And that's why Harazesim became the original famous Jewish cemetery in the world. And that's why the Hebra Kadisha charges more money there than in other places. And you know that Jews like to be first in line, right? So it's going to happen, so you might as well, might as well be there. But that's the same concept, that there's a holiness to the land itself. And the holiness is that it's Eretz HaChayim, it's you're alive. Even if the person is physically not alive. But being in Eretz Yisrael, because of Echiper Admoso Amo, then he is considered to be alive. And the Gemara says, Tzadikim B'misosom Nikroim Chayim. Righteous people, even if they have passed from the world, are still called living people. And Rishoyim B'chayayim, evil people, even if they're still walking around on the earth, Nikroim Mesim, they're dead already. The definition of life and death is not necessarily whether a person is breathing. It has to do with our soul, it has to do with our eternity, it has to do with our memory, it has to do with what people think of us what generations think of us. And therefore, the, gener- the definition of Chayim and Mesim is different. So the Gemara therefore says, Yeshivas Eretz Yisrael mitzvah bifnei Living in Eretz Yisrael is a mitzvah all by itself. So just being here is a mitzvah. You accomplish a mitzvah daily by being here. Not only that, the Gemara says... That kolam halich dalat amos veretz yisrael. If you walk four amos in eretz yisrael, every four amos you walk, you have a mitzvah. I had a, I knew a great Jew, Elio Kitov, Monkatovsky. He, Elio Kitov, wrote the Sefer Parshias and the Sefer Atodah. Uh, he was one, of, he was a remarkable person. I remember he came to Chicago. I was 15 years old. He came to Chicago and he spoke. He was a gifted orator, just a tremendous orator. The old-time Polish orators that could speak for two hours and it was like five minutes. And he was a a tremendously charismatic, wonderful person. And then I got to know him again in Miami and then uh, here in Eretz Yisrael before he passed away. I saw him a few times. So he told me a story once that a Jew, a rabbi, came from the United States and he was visiting him, and he started complaining about how things are here, which is not hard to do, especially if you come from the outside, so then, you know. So if you read the newspaper here, you know, you're depressed every day, except for an occasional column, but otherwise... 
Otherwise, it's very depressing, right? So he was telling he was telling Monkatovsky everything that's wrong. So Monkatovsky took him by the hand, Elio Kitov, he took him by the hand, and he took him outside the door of his apartment, and he said, come, we're going to take a walk. One, two, three, four, a mitzvah. One, two, three, four, a mitzvah. He made him walk four amas every time. He says, a mitzvah. He said, oh, that, that's how you have to look at her, Tzisrael. Don't tell me what the... So it's a confusion, and I think that's an important point. You, you should not confuse the government, the policies, the, uh, the national structure of the state of Israel with Eretz Israel. It's two different things. And because we confuse the two, so unfortunately there are Jews that don't appreciate Eretz Israel because they don't like the government. Or they don't like the way Jews behave here. Or they see always the shadows instead of the light. But yeah, you're not allowed to see Eretz Yisrael that way. It was the whole lesson with the Miraglim that Moshe sent the spies. Everything they said was true. But then they added one thing. They said, but the land is no good. That, that sealed their doom. You could say there are giants in the land. You can say it will be hard to conquer it. You can say there are great fortresses. You can say the United Nations is against us. You can say everything. That's all true. But you can't say anything about Eretz Israel. Motsi di Bosom Roa. They said bad things about the land. Eretz Ocheles Yoshveri, they said. It's a land that destroys its people. Oh, no, God said, no, no, no. There you cross the red line. You can't talk about Eretz Yisrael. You have to always talk, Bishvocho Shel Eretz Yisrael. You always have to talk about what, the greatness of it. And the other things you can say. There's, there's no problem in saying that there are giants in the land, that it, it's going to be hard and it's going to be this, and the, and the Kanani are here and the Prezi are here, and all of that was true. They, they were not punished for saying that. That was their job to come back and give the report. But their conclusion of saying, Eretz Ocheles Yoshveli, that it's a country that destroys people, oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 not that. That God didn't allow. And so that's a basic rule. So again, you know, you can disagree with the government, and they give you plenty of reason to do so. And you can disagree with policies, and you disagree, but you cannot disagree with Eretz Israel because that's an overriding value. It's such an overriding value that Chazal say, "Gimel Menochale Olam You want to have a fast-tracked Olam You know, like in the computer now, uh, if uh, four seconds is too long for you to wait till you get on the internet. So they have like a streaming broadband that's always on, and you're there in a second, right? You mean the shortcut. So what's the shortcut, Olam So the Gemara says, Zador Eretz Yisrael. If you live in Eretz Yisrael, that's a shortcut, Olam So the rabbi saw it as such an overriding value that uh, that 
it, it can take you to Olam Just being in Eretz Yisrael can take you in Olam And the Gemara said that you have to treat Eretz Yisrael with respect. The land, again. Gemara says, Ain Megadlin Behema Daka Eretz Yisrael. They didn't want to grow sheep, goats in Eretz Yisrael because they eat up all the grass, they destroy the country. So they had to have special reservations for them in places, mostly in the deserts. There's zoning laws that the Gemara is full of regarding Eretz Yisrael, and especially regarding Yerushalayim. You can't have smoke in the city, and you can't have manufacturing, because the place is holy. You have to treat it holy. And if it's holy, you can't do everything you want. It has restrictions with it. The Gemara says, why does it rain in the world? <laughs> How the Gemara talks. Why does it rain in the world? So the Gemara says, because Eretz Yisrael needs rain. Since Eretz Yisrael needs rain, so it rains in Ireland too. But if Eretz Yisrael wouldn't need rain, and that's what it says, that lo Eretz Mitzrayim, you're going to bring it to a place that's not like the land of Egypt where it never has to rain because they have the Nile River and they can irrigate everything. I'm bringing a place that's dry, that's desert, and you have to hope that it rains. And therefore, since the soil needs rain, so the whole world is blessed with rain. And that's why when we say Geshem and Tal, the prayers, so the prayers are for Eretz soil, even if we are living in different places, in different climes, and because of the fact that every place is blessed because of Eretz Yisrael. The Rosh was asked when he was the Rav in Toledo in the uh, 1300s, the early 1300s, why in Spain, in Toledo, which has plenty of rain, uh, why should they say Talumota? Uh, or Mashibaruach Muradageshen? Because it really doesn't affect them. And the Rosh answered, we don't say it for Toledo, we don't say it for Spain, we say it for Eretz Yisrael. If Eretz Yisrael will be blessed, then every place will be blessed. And if Eretz Yisrael is, God forbid, not blessed, so then the things aren't blessed in other places either. That is how Chazal saw Eretz Yisrael. They saw it as the focus of all blessings. The country itself. And one of the signs that the rabbi said of the impending redemption of the land of, of the Jewish people, rather, is when the land of Israel begins to produce. When you see uh, the fruit market full of every imaginable type of fruit and vegetable, it's something which was unheard of even uh, 30 years ago, 25 years ago in the country. And today we take it for granted. You know, and we're disappointed, you know, that uh, blueberries are out of season. But uh, Chazal saw in every piece of fruit and every vegetable that grew in the land of Israel, they saw holiness. Because that is the idea of mitzvah satluyos of the mitzvahs that are dependent 
upon growing in Eretz Yisrael. Rabbis say, why did Moshe make such a fuss that he wants to go to Eretz Yisrael? And I prayed to God, the Gemara says, 900 times, and until God said, you know, send the Nudnik away, stop. I don't want to hear anymore. Don't talk about it anymore. So the Chazal says, so what does Moshe want? What is Moshe missing? Moshe is going all the Mabah, Moshe has the Torah, Moshe is uh, intimate, so to speak, with God himself. So what does he need? So the Gemara says he needs the mitzvahs of Leosporets. He needs to eat an apple that doesn't have orla, kilayim, that has miser, that has truma. That's what he needs. So we take it for granted, right? By us, an apple is an apple is an apple. But Jews always saw in it more than the apple. They always saw in it, it's a holiness because it's sanctified. It's sanctified with so many mitzvahs. And Chazal even goes so far as to say that all the mitzvahs that are performed outside the land of Israel, film, Kriyashma, Tefillah, all of the mitzvahs that Jews do the world over are only to keep in training for doing mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael. And that the real mitzvahs are only in Eretz Yisrael. So it gives us a different sense of being here it certainly, uh, uh, I always have that feeling, at least, on the rare times that I eat a fruit, that, uh, you know, look at me, right? Generally, I always have the feeling, you know, Moshe couldn't do it, and I'm doing it. Moshe wasn't here, and I'm here. Right? I take it for granted. But the rabbi saw in it this great holiness, this great uniqueness, this great special feeling. Because it's Eretz Asher Ene Hashem Shona It's the holy land. It's a place where God is, so to speak. And because of that, the rabbis called it Palterin Shomelech, the king's palace. So there are duties upon us, because if you're in the king's palace, you're supposed to behave yourself. But however that may be, it's still the king's palace. And therefore, that is the feeling, the emotion that goes with it. Now, Chazal saw in uh, Yishu Veretz Yisrael of... Overriding values. They said, for instance, Yishuvar Tzisoyel in certain instances overrides the Shabbat. The Gemara says, Mutter, it is permissible, Lokachas Botim Beretz Tzisoyel Minakum, on Shabbat to buy property in Eretz Tzisoyel from the hands of non Jews because of the fact that Yishuvar Tzisoyel takes precedence. And uh, the Gemara says that Eretz Yisrael domel lemilo. The mitzvah of Eretz Yisrael is equal to the mitzvah of circumcision. Ma mila docha Shabbos. Just like the mitzvah of mila is docha Shabbos, and if the child is born 
on Shabbat and his Brit is on Shabbat. That was usually the origin of the name Shabsai. As a child that was born on Shabbat and circumcised on Shabbat. So he was a Shabbos Jew. So too, Eretz Yisrael, Dolche Shabbat. Eretz Yisrael also, certain instances, is also Dolche de Shabbat. And therefore we have this great quality simply because of the holiness of Eretz Yisrael. Now the Gemara says even more radical statements. Uh, the Gemara wouldn't say it, I certainly wouldn't say it. Certainly not on television. But it's a Gemara. The Gemara says, A Jew should live in Eretz Yisrael, even in a city, in a community that is mainly non-Jewish. Rather than living in Chutz Loretz, in a city that is very Jewish. Anybody who lives in Eretz Yisrael sooner or later comes to the realization that there's a God in the world. And in Chutz Loretz, after a while, God takes a very secondary position. Now, that's a very strong statement. If we would apply it today, we could say it without mentioning names of communities, but we all know, you know, that there are holy Jewish communities throughout the world. And here in Israel, there are places where, you know, it's not so hot. It's not so great. But the Gemara says Eretz Yisrael is such an overriding value. Living in Eretz Yisrael is such an overriding value that it overrides that too. The Gemara says, Kol Ador Be'eretz Yisrael, Shorui below Ovo. Someone who lives in Eretz Yisrael is as though he lives without sin. So the Mephoshim explained, because the Yisurim of Eretz Yisrael are of such a nature that our sins are forgiven daily. And you'll think about it. Every day, every day something happens, right? You listen to the news. I don't know anybody that walks away from the news happy. So that instant of pain, when you hear the stupidities that go on, and the problems, right? So that instant is a kapora already. Because one of the uh, facets of Eretz Yisrael is that it's mechaper. And since it's niknis biyasurim, so therefore the sins are more easily erased. So there was always an eternal covenant between the Jewish people and the land of Israel, whoever the Jews were. The Jews always, they named their uh, streets after uh, the land of Israel. You know, I went uh, once uh, through Provence, every little town where Jews once were, Lunel and Montpellier and uh, Arles and uh, Orange, 
and uh, post squares, all the towns where the Chachme Provence lived. So there are no Jews left. All the Jews are gone. There isn't even a Jewish cemetery left. There's nothing. But in all of them, in the medieval part of the town that is preserved, there is a street called Rue Jerusalem. And Jews always remembered it. Whoever they went. And Nachman of Breslov said, every step that I take is towards Jerusalem. That was the covenant that Jews had. And even though uh, for centuries on end they had no chance to physically achieve it, but mentally in their minds they achieved it. Spiritually they achieved it. They were home. Therefore, even in the darkest places of Eastern Europe and in the mellows of Morocco, uh, Jews were attached to Eretz Yisrael. And they were attached to Eretz Yisrael because of the fact that it was a value. It was not a matter of Jewish nationalism. It was a matter of a spiritual value that held a place in their heart and soul. And uh, that's part of the problem. Uh, what happened uh, over a hundred years ago with the coming of secular Zionism is that uh, secular Zionism uh, replaced the value of Eretz Israel and it replaced it with the value of Jewish nationalism, of being a nation. To a certain extent, Kehola Goyim base Israel. We're going to be like everybody else. We have our own country and our own flag and our own army and our own anthem and we'll be like everyone else. And it's no surprise, therefore, that in 1904, when England offered Uganda to Herzl, he took it. Because he wasn't sold on Eretz Israel, he was sold on the fact that the Jews need a national home, they need a place of refuge. And that national home, a place of refuge, could be Uganda, right? It's just too bad that America didn't offer San Diego. Of course, had America offered San Diego, things would have been a lot different. Thank God they didn't, and thank God uh, the uh, quest was kept for Eretz Israel. It's a good place to stop. Uh, this was um, Rabbi Beryl Wine speaking on the topic of Israel as a Jewish value. We come to the end of the show today, and I appreciate everybody listening to JM Sunday programming continues all day long. My thanks to Mayor Weingarten for helping me with these selections of uh, Rabbi Barrel Wine. We'll be back here next week on the 10th of Av, which is actually commemorated as Tisha B'Av with the fast day, and uh, we'll be here with programming appropriate for the day until uh, you know, until the fast is over. They'll, of course, be programming on the network also next week. Uh, and again, programming continues all day long here on the stream, NachumSiegel.com and SN app. Nachum will be back tomorrow morning, God willing, at 6 a.m. on JM in the AM, and then Mayor Weingarten following with the, the Israel Show exclusively on the stream. Like us on Facebook, like the Israel Show on Facebook. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week right here on JM Sunday.